where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this was an exceptional interview with Jeremy Allaire. What were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, Jeremy Allaire, founder of Circle and USDC. Uh, a really a timely episode because of how much regulatory action there's been, especially in the last quarter of 2020 and 2021 shows that there's no signs of that slowing down. And USDC and crypto dollars seems to be kind of at the forefront of that regulatory conversation. So that's one of the big topics that we get into with Jeremy Allaire, as well as, of course, USDC inside of DeFi, USDC replacing the commercial banking layer, and all the benefits that public permissionless blockchains like Ethereum can offer the world using things like USDC. Yeah, it's interesting because he seemed pretty bullish uh, actually uh, on the regulatory side that we were going to kind of come out ahead. Uh, and I'm not sure that he'd always say that. Um, so there have probably been times where I've seen him in, in various uh, ways frustrated with the, the regulatory bodies of, of the US and kind of their handling of crypto, but he seemed pretty optimistic this time around. What's interesting to me, David, is he knows a number of these regulators on a, a on a first name basis, so he's very plugged into that world and is kind of fighting for for crypto uh, in DC at that level. So it's good to see him optimistic on that. Yeah, one of the most interesting components of this interview that was my biggest takeaway was um, the relationship between Coinbase and Circle and USDC. Uh, there was a little bit of unexpected protocol sync thesis conversation to to have there where the the center consortium uh, is kind of this neutral layer for producing USDC that Coinbase is a part of and Circle is a part of. And I, I thought that that was a pretty interesting takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those of you who are wondering, you're saying like USDC, guys, that's not that's not bankless. You're right. It's not completely bankless. This is kind of a, a crypto banking uh, type product. However, uh, we did talk a lot about how this is the gateway to DeFi, essentially mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. This is the gateway to non-sovereign stores of value, commodity monies like Bitcoin and like Ether. Uh, and Jeremy talked about how he was bullish ultimately on that future. This is mm -hmm. another bridge into that world and another path to get here. I think it would be a shame if people stopped at USDC mm -hmm. on Coinbase and didn't do anything else. Um, but I don't think that's likely, David. I think right. once they get a taste of crypto, you know, you got to go all in. You got to explore the frontier. You got to go into where the the action and excitement is, which is which is DeFi. So this is going to be a gateway. This is not a, a replacement of crypto native mm -hmm. systems to me. Yeah, and bankless maximalism, I don't think is for everyone, right? So it's not just, you know, Ether and DeFi tokens in your Ethereum address. US, using USDC in your Ethereum address is way more bankless than Wells Fargo dollars in your Wells Fargo account. It's always a step in the right direction. And the more USDC on Ethereum, the more financialized and monetized Ether the asset and Ethereum the economy is. So I think it's, it's long-term bullish for Ethereum no matter what. Uh, guys, this was a fantastic interview. 
just a reminder for Bankless paid subscribers, there is a 20, 30 minute debrief conversation that Ryan and I have at the end of every single episode. That's where Ryan and I just hop into Zoom and we discuss the episode right after we record it. That is available to all Bankless paid listeners as well, as well as all the other debriefs we've ever done. And some of this is some of the best learning that I get done just having these conversations with Ryan after the episode. And I'm, I'm happy to make these uh, conversations of available to the Bankless paid subscribers as well. So if you guys want to access that, there is a link in the show notes so you can go and hear those debrief conversations. We will jump into the interview with Jeremy in just a minute, but before we do, we've got to tell you about the fantastic sponsors who made this Bankless episode possible. Synthetics is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetics is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetics. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by Synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the Synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on Synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from synthetics. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is both a one-two punch of an Ethereum smart contract wallet, as well as an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet wherever Visa is accepted. It's really a fantastic tool that lets you use Ethereum for what it does best, which is holding and managing your financial assets, but also keeps you connected to the rest of the world's payment rails. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if ever you need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet. So your money is never held by a centralized intermediary because your Monolith wallet is native to Ethereum. Monolith helps you transcend both the legacy and the crypto worlds because the money that you hold in your Monolith wallet has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. But with Monolith, so are the groceries at your grocery store or the coffee at your coffee shop. Go to monolith.xyz to sign up and get your Monolith Visa card today. Bankless Nation, we are here with Jeremy Allaire. He is a serial entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of Circle. He is also almost the king of stablecoins in a way. He's definitely an advocate for the US crypto industry in Washington, D.C. Jeremy, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thanks, Ryan uh, and David. Really awesome to be here with you guys. Do you know, okay, so uh, can we start with this question? Uh, Nomenclature-wise, is it stablecoin or crypto dollar? What do you prefer? 
you know, it's really funny when we got started uh, working on this, uh, we, 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 we sort of called these fiat tokens, <laughs> but, but like that, that obviously was like what they were. Uh, uh, and then sort of stablecoin became what people started referring to these as. And, um, you know, you know, I, I think like now basically like people call this stuff stable coins in the broader sector, like if it's in like policy or, 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 you know, financial institutions, you know, big fintechs um, in crypto, obviously stable coin is, is pretty well known. I like crypto dollar as well, um, but um, but I think that the you know you know USDC is is both a stablecoin and a crypto dollar, but there are going to be stablecoins that are not crypto dollars, and so I think the category is is still stablecoin. Ooh, I like this. Okay, so what is the distinction? What is the difference between stablecoin versus stable dollar? Well, I mean, you could have a euro stablecoin, or you could have a yen stablecoin, or a Singapore dollar stablecoin, and those are not crypto dollars because they're not ah, dollars. Okay. And then so it's I just, also just would also not fit into the category of crypto dollar, right? Because it's also DAI is not a dollar. Right. I mean, that 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 is a is a is a sort of this kind of collateralized, uh, you know, issued um, instrument. Um, it's a little bit a little bit different. I mean, we're getting into semantics, obviously, but uh, uh, they're, you know, on a spectrum. There's, you know, d different ways of, of working with this stuff. Okay, well, let's let's start this by talking a little bit about um, last year, 2020. It was really like the year of crypto dollars. It was the year of, of stable coins. We want to get into USDC and the role that it played. I have kind of a question before we get into all of that to you, which is, um, I'm not sure it's totally clear for our listeners or, or for myself, what is the relationship between uh, Circle and Coinbase with respect to USDC? Because sometimes you, you kind of hear about um, Circle and USDC. Other times you, you hear about kind of Coinbase and USDC. Uh, can you tell us about that relationship? Does, yeah. does one of you own USDC versus <laughs> the other? Do you both issue? How does it work? Yeah. So, um, so just a, a little bit of history here. Um, we, we've been as Circle, you know, very interested in in models for how you can kind of represent uh, fiat currency as digital currency, um, and we've experimented with different ways of approaching that over the years. And then in 2017, we made a decision to kind of work on what we thought of as like a protocol layer for fiat tokens, <laughs> um, and uh, and with 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 US dollar uh, tokens being the the starting point for that. Um, but really importantly, um, when we thought about it, we really believed and, and obviously continue to believe that the, the right long-term approach for something like this is to have a governed standard and, um, and to really build a governance model around it. Um, and there's a lot of analogies to other things that are standards on the internet, whether it's you know, the World Wide Web Consortium and, and the standards around the web, uh, or, or the IETF and standards around different protocols uh, that exist on the internet. But in, in particular with like fiat protocols and, and the kinds of things that you build around them, you don't just want that to be from a company. You, you really want it to be something that can be um, you know, uh, multiple issuers, multiple companies, multiple geographies, and actually have a governance process around it. So we created something called Center um, and Coinbase joined us in the in the founding of Center, and um, and basically from 
the fall of 2018 until you know today, Circle and Coinbase both manage Center Consortium. Um, and we can talk more about that in, in a little bit because it's growing independently of either Circle or Coinbase. And uh, there's a new, I think, incredibly strong CEO that is going to be building out that consortium uh, in a very significant way with a lot of different types of firms getting involved. Um, we, I think, as Circle and Coinbase together, saw an opportunity to build a standard uh, and govern a standard um, that could work uh, as a, a high quality kind of trusted, you know, dollar market infrastructure in, in the crypto economy. Um, technically, you know, Circle operates as what's called the minting issuer of USDC and Coinbase operates as what is called an issuer of USDC. Um, and um, we have, uh, we, we kind of jointly govern the evolution of the smart contracts, the open source project. We all contribute source code to that and implementations to that. Um, we make decisions together about where that standard goes. There's other policies like the governance of the reserve model, the compliance and regulatory model, all those things we do together. So that's something that has been a really, really close partnership between Circle and Coinbase um, over the years. Um, well, what would you say would be the advantage of the dividing up of responsibilities of, of uh, USDC? And is yeah. that how you would kind of characterize what um, it's, it's, the It's not so is? much a dividing up of responsibilities, um, uh, meaning um, there, there are a lot of pieces to this. I think the, the first is that, um, you know, stable coins are, are regulated as like a stored value electronic money um, uh, technology and payment uh, technology in, in the United States. And that's increasingly how they're being regulated in other parts of the world. And in, in that model, there is sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a company that is doing the issuing um, of that e-money, if you will, um, and has the fiduciary responsibility that has to manage the, the, the reserves uh, and is ultimately on the hook uh, as the licensed and regulated entity that is that is doing that. Now, on top of that, you can build all kinds of different arrangements around the technology standards, around distribution, and that's what Center really established. Um, but I, I think the best way to think about this and the way we think about this is, you know, essentially every kind of major innovation in electronic money um, has been consortium of private sector actors that are working together on technical standards and interoperability, uh, and and they and then they build kind of governance models around it. That's what SWIFT is. SWIFT is a, a consortium of of private sector actors. They happen to be systemically important, so major central banks also have a supervisory role. Uh, if you look at what most people think of as the, the sort of most popular forms of electronic payments, like card networks would probably be what you think of. Card networks are associations of members, they're consortiums. They define set of technical standards, they define interoperability. And that way, you know, not every bank is issuing their own proprietary system for processing cards. They all can get interoperability with each other. And, and in a sense, they're, it creates a fungible electronic money unit. So stablecoins have the same potential um, and I think will be far, far larger in scale ultimately in terms of what, what, they, what they handle uh, compared to those um, more, more proprietary models. But um, th that's a little bit of a way to think about it. And so success over time looks like lots of crypto finance firms, 
uh, large consumer fintechs, banks, others that are part of a consortium that are involved in this and involved in governance and involved in the standards. And that's when, you know, as that happens, we think this gets into, you know, trillions of dollars of scale um, that, that are issued in these digital currencies. You know, it's funny, people would not have believed trillions of dollars of scale was possible before a year like 2020. We'll talk about the numbers in a bit. I, I just want to make one comment on what you're saying with consortiums. Uh, quite famously, Visa was a consortium, yeah, right? absolutely. the largest payment network um, in the world, came out of the like, 60s and 70s. Uh, and that, that was a consortium the same way you're talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. We use this term, uh, Jeremy, called um, credible neutrality a lot on Bankless. Um, the idea that more credibly neutral uh, protocols or organizations or institutions are more scalable because for the simple reason that they are um, unbiased, they're neutral. Mm -hmm. So if you as Circle are competing uh, against, you know, um, like other exchanges like a Coinbase or a Gemini, right? Um, like they're going to release their own coin to kind of compete with you, right? Because it's sort of a winner take all market and you're all you know, competing. But as a consortium, you could scale much larger because totally. no one has, no single entity or company has the governance power yeah. to uh, bias, you know, the, the coin in their favor or not. So the circle model, uh, it, it, it seems to me, and the center model, that consortium underneath you know, yeah. USDC is far more scalable. Yeah. And um, it does seem like we could grow to something as large and as fundamentally important as like the Visa network here on top of something. Oh, like absolutely. That. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I have this philosophy and this is sort of a, a, an internet philosophy in some ways, which is, you know, as we've, uh, as we've enabled sort of these um, decentralized protocols and distributed systems that kind of connect people and machines everywhere, um, that, you know, whether it be for sharing of data, sharing of content, communications, like all these kind of layers that have been built up over the past decades. Every time you do that and you enable global connectivity into standards like that, the, the, the actual volume of what happens ends up being orders of magnitude larger than in the prior uh, more closed network systems. And so like my view would be that like the, the, the you know, gross scale of transactions uh, in the world will just be radically larger because as costs approach zero, which I think inevitably they do, the, the economic, the, the unit economic costs approach zero, then the velocity can be even larger. Um, and so, you know, sort of the net output of payment volume um, in the world will, will, will grow larger and larger. Um, and then, you know, it, it comes back to, you know, people wanting to store value um, in these digital currency units because they have greater utility value. And so that leads to, you know, trillions of dollars in, in market capitalization over time. Yeah, it's totally true. Like what you're saying is open networks win, right? And we've yes. definitely seen that with uh, Ethereum being an open network and all of these Absolutely. stable coins being deployed on top of it. I hope we, we address that in a moment. I want to talk about uh, growth for just a second here because stable coin supply uh, is up from 6 billion in January, 2020 to 34 billion now, yeah. right? USDC itself, 500 million to 5 billion last year yeah um just insane actually, yeah i mean it's 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 been wild yeah i mean we're at we're we're just cross just about to we've just crossed 5.4 billion i mean it's it's 
Well, were you surprised by this? Are you surprised by this? Totally. I mean, at one level, I'm surprised. At another level, I'm not. Because obviously, as we built this and we thought about it, we thought, okay, this is this this has this potential. Um, I think everyone was caught by surprise in terms of how rapidly the pickup of this happened in, in 2020. And it was really interesting. I mean, I remember, obviously, extremely vividly to basically early March uh, of last year. And um, it's, it's really interesting. You can correlate the growth very heavily to the, 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 the impact of the pandemic on the economy. And um, you know, we saw issuance start to spike up as crypto markets came alive in Asia in response to COVID. Um, and then as the pandemic took hold globally, uh, just the, the the volume you know started to really really take off. Um, so there was this interesting correlation. But I think back in in early March, we were actually just launching a whole new suite of of services built up around USDC, and and we didn't know you know what what the demand would look like uh, for that. We had a lot of ideas, and and I remember sitting with my board of directors. It was actually literally like days before the lockdown in the United States, and. And just saying like, geez, I don't know what's going to happen is the economy are like, are, do we need to like, you know, you know, cut our company in half? Like what's going to happen here? Um, as a lot of people kind of thought about it. And then, you know, literally it was it was just um, just all of a sudden the just the growth just started kicking in. We we're like, oh, my God, well, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, and so it, it really did t take us by surprise um, in the abstract. It's, it's sort of we've always felt some inevitability to this. And so I've always thought, yeah, this can be really, really big. Um, but even, you know, throughout the year, the way in which uh, it, it sort of tended to compound, no pun intended, it, it really uh, it far exceeded certainly what we had planned. One of my favorite tweets that came out of 2020 was Brian Armstrong's tweet uh, a couple days after the $1,200 stimulus check went out. And he tweeted out just a graph of different deposit sizes going into Coinbase and the $1,200 yeah. deposit size yeah. was just yeah. through the charts. Would yeah. you say that, that USDC benefited from similar tailwinds as the Coinbase deposits into, into uh, their, their, uh, their bank? I mean, um, I think there's some correlation there. I mean, overall, I would say, I mean, this is sort of the crypto markets as a whole, right? Uh, it's been it's been perceived to be a uh, uh, an asset class that has benefited from the enormous amount of uh, of of inflation that's taking place in in real world dollars, and so that goes into risk assets. It goes into crypto. It drives crypto market growth. Drives demand in turn for stable coins. Um, you know, crypto market growth drives demand for DeFi borrowing, DeFi lending, drives demand for stable coins. Um, and then dollarization as a theme, uh, crypto dollarization, but dollarization more broadly is driving demand. And that's a direct impact of economic conditions around the world, currency devaluations, things like that, that are happening. And so all of those seem to kind of feed each other a little bit uh, as well. Would you say that that's the main reason why there has been such an influx of USDC into Ethereum? Is it just serving those demands or is there other forces at play as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the overarching drivers are there's just continued significant growth in, in individuals and institutions participating in digital asset markets. That's one. Um, the, the second, it, which is very much related, is this incredible growth in DeFi 
and DeFi protocols, which really heavily rely on on stable coins, um, both as collateral and as the as borrowed assets and and for liquidity and other things. Um, and um, and then what we've seen, which has been really fascinating, is this really, really interesting growth in businesses, not just crypto native companies, but a lot of different types of organizations who are basically realizing, wow, this is a really powerful settlement medium. Uh, this actually has a whole bunch of advantages compared to the banking system. And so we're just seeing really, really nice growth in, in businesses that are adopting this for international, global transactions. Uh, we're seeing demand uh, for this that's coming out of Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, other, other parts of the world, which is really interesting. And so I think um, one of the phenomenons, and this relates to, to the actual kind of market cap growth as well, which is um, what's been really interesting about USDC, and, and I think also for Tether as well, is you know, the, the net number in circulation continues to grow. Now, what, what people don't know is with USDC is that it's redeemed on a massive scale as well. Um, it, it's, you know, it works both ways, right? It's not like a roach motel. Um, it works both ways. And, uh, and so, you know, it, that's, that's incredibly important, right? This is, this is valued as a dollar because it's always redeemable as a dollar. And there's great retail infrastructure for that through Coinbase. There's great institutional infrastructure for that through Circle. And, and so there's enormous, there's billions of dollars of value that's redeemed as well. But the net amount in circulation continues to grow because people, it's sticky. People, once they start using it and holding it, they realize, well, why would I want to get, why would I want to put this back into the ACH form of money? Or why would I want to put this back into the SWIFT form of money? I'd rather keep it in a blockchain native form because it's just more powerful that way. Uh, and so we're seeing that stickiness and that's creating flywheel effects of people who are realizing that this can actually be used for a, a much broader range of payment use cases. Right, one so of the, the, the bankless theses is the, uh, the Ethereum protocol is one of the great disintermediaries and specifically of the banking layer the, and specifically yeah. the commercial banking layer. And, yeah. and you just said it, but like so many people are seeing the advantages of using USDC on Ethereum to settle payments and transactions between them. What do you think, how do you think these uh, forces are going to impact the commercial banking uh, industry? Like how, how will the commercial banking layer of the world pivot to answer to this new uh, payment infrastructure with like, for example, USDC on Ethereum? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many dimensions to it. I mean, one of the really big pieces of news um, was just a couple of weeks ago, right? Which was that the, the OCC, um, which is the you know, banking regulator for 75% of the, of, the, of the national banks in the United States, um, you know, issued a whole set of guidance around uh, the use of stable coins and public chains as a payment infrastructure, as a settlement infrastructure, as an electronic stored value mechanism in the US financial system. So that's a really big deal because um, it basically signals that, you know, banks and financial institutions can can rely on this in some ways the same way that they rely upon uh you know the ACH network or or other other types of things so in in some ways i think th there is this kind of convergence that happens which is uh this becomes a really powerful you know payment system um and 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 banks and consumer fintechs and crypto firms and commerce firms and others will kind of connect to it and utilize it. So I think that's 
extremely positive for Ethereum, obviously. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and we can talk about, you know, other, you know, layer one, layer two type issues as well. But I, I think, you know, th that becomes something that uh, gets broadly adopted. But I think over the long run, and this gets to, I think, a core issue is we believe that, um, you know, as kind of third generation blockchains, and I include Ethereum 2 in that, and there are certainly other interesting layer one projects out there, um, but even just say successful layer twos on Ethereum, as, as that infrastructure gets widely deployed, the cost of payment transactions falls to zero. And for traditional, um, you know, uh, commercial banks, you know, it, it depends on, on the given institution, but there's a big chunk of money they make from charging fees around storing money and transmitting money. And then there's a big bunch of money that they make from loans and from, you know, risk taking essentially. And I think over the long run, um, you know, the, the ability to extract fees or, or achieve profits from the payment settlement will just go to zero. Right, it's sort of like you, no one charges for long-distance telephone calls anymore. Uh, you know, or, or so, so many different types of services. Like we can have these free video calls with anyone anywhere in the world. No one's making any money on that per se. Um, so I think that that happens um, there. And so I think that that impacts any any business whose core business model is charging a fee to collect or make a payment. Um, and you got to kind of pick your time frame there, but it's inevitable. Um, uh, and so I, I think that has a big impact. I think the more interesting, and I think obviously a huge set of topics that you guys explore all the time is, um, you know, what does the disintermediation of other kind of financial contracts, other types of financial um, market activities that becomes protocol governed and, and protocol facilitated, what does that do uh, to those business models? And that's a fascinating area, obviously, uh, and, and one which we're, we're quite excited and bullish about uh, ourselves, which I think we're in the very early stages of that. Um, you know, I, I, we, we talk about total value, you know, locked, we talk about the growth there, but when we look at the, the total amount of capital that gets deployed into borrowing and lending or, you know, that, uh, you know, is issued against collateral and other things in the world, it's in the trillions of dollars, right? It's it's in it's enormous, and so there's a tremendous opportunity to transform uh, to transform that. There are obviously, you know, um, I, I had a conversation uh, with Robert Leshner last week, and the topic I, I, I kind of laddered off of um, Brian Brooks' editorial in the FT about self-driving banks and what that looks like, and so we were just playing off of that concept and. You know, right now, the, the, a lot of the protocols that are there that interact with stable coins, I mean, it's fully collateralized, uh, you know, borrowing and lending. Um, the critical thing about commercial banks is that they they take risks. They basically say, we believe that there'll be future cash flows from from you as an entity, whether an individual or business. And we're actually going to create they create money. They create new money. They create new money by creating new deposits, and it's an extension of credit, and it's a it's built on the premise that there will be future cash flows. It's impossible to do that uh, right now uh, with crypto. By definition, you can't create money, um, and so I think it's an interesting interplay. Which is uh, is do we move into a world of full reserve banking? 
uh, and and we live within the limits of of kind of fully issued assets, whether it be a Bitcoin or a USDC or or what have you. Uh, and 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 then ultimately, what is how does that interact with that traditional banking business model of money creation and, and credit? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, DeFi has not built out its credit primitive yet. That is something that is yeah. is certainly yet to yet to come. Yeah. You know, I, I I was thinking about this. So Bankless, of course, is uh, b- believes in the thesis that this technology, crypto, will completely disrupt the the banking system. And I think a lot of like so Bankless is a group of of users, right? We actually we don't just um, talk about crypto, we actually use crypto. And I want to underscore this this point for, for, for someone who's maybe a little bit new. There are like three types of digital dollars that you can have right now, uh, or there are three, three types of dollars you can have. One is like physical dollars in your wallet, right? That has obvious limitations, not very yeah. poor. It's like not in the digital at all. It's not internet. Um, then you have like dollars in your bank account, like these Wells Fargo dollars. Sure. Um, and and they suck too, because anytime you want to actually do something with your money, there's a limit on taking how much out, or there's ACH transfer. I was, yeah, I have to show up at a bank with my ID physically to wire some funds. That's with my local bank. Like, how crazy is that? And then you have this third category of dollars, uh, which are crypto dollars or stable coins, USDC, right? Is, is one of those. And what I found personally, Jeremy, on my kind of crypto bankless journey is that like stable coins like USDC are so much more valuable than the Wells Fargo dollars, totally. yeah. right? So like you were mentioning that uh, USDC is sticky. Oh my God, yes. Like I want all of my my U.S. dollars out yeah. of Wells Fargo and into at least something like a Coinbase where it's in USDC. Why? Yeah. Because USDC is like dollars with superpowers. Yeah. Right. Like dollars plus so, software. It's dollars plus software, yeah. and and it it has exposure to crypto rails, so I can yeah. generate more yield on it. I can send money to David in like two minutes, right? Yeah. Any amount that I want. I don't have to. I don't have to show up at a bank in person. Yeah. Like that's what this is. That's what this is providing people. It's dollars with superpowers. Yeah, we actually, I actually have have used that phrase <laughs> to talk about it uh, in, in the past. Um, yeah, you're, you're sort of superpowered, turbocharged <laughs> uh, uh, kind of kind of dollars. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the really interesting um, other differences that I, I think is more subtle is. You know, b- because USDC, it's a full reserve, uh, you know, digital currency unit, it's fully reserved against underlying dollars. Um, you know, it, 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 it has some different attributes. Um, I think, you know, a, a com- commercial bank money, as you, if you think about it in the, in the classic sense, um, you know, your, your dollar at Wells Fargo, if that happens to be the bank or whatever that you're using, that dollar is is a claim on their balance sheet. Um, it's an IOU. <laughs> uh, it literally is, right? And so, you know, they they, they might you know have, uh, you know, an, uh, they might have let's just say ten you know ten billion dollars of of actual you know kind of deposits of base level M one money, um, and. But their 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 obligations, uh, you know, that are outstanding might actually be a hundred billion. 
Um, so, you know, the, 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 the assets to, to kind of um, uh, deposits ratio can be like eight to one. Um, and, and there are standards for that, that Basel Bank of International Settlements and, and the, the Basel standard set for banks. Um, and so it's, they're, they're a little bit different in that sense. And, and that's, that's the classic, you know, fractional reserve money, uh, uh, you know, um, kind of, kind of concept and issue. And, and that's obviously subtle for people to understand. Um, but uh, it, yeah, I mean, just the utility value alone obviously is, is significant. One of my favorite mental models about this industry is, is that uh, the cryptocurrency industry is like speed running through the history of money and finance, right? Like Bitcoin is our digital gold. Uh, yeah. Ethereum is turning into our banking layer. And, you know, one of the, one of these uh, landmarks, one of these stops along the speed running of monetary history is um, fully reserve banks. And then in the future after that is fractional reserve banks. Which kind of implies, if you want to yeah. extrapolate that out, that fractional reserve uh, crypto dollars perhaps might be coming to Ethereum one day. Um, why not USDC? And maybe you can talk about just like where you see the evolution of crypto dollars um, going uh, into the future. Well, I mean, the, the critical thing is that if you move to a fractional reserve model um, for digital currency, then it is it is the, you're, you're talking about you know banks. I mean, that's, that is what a bank does. That is the business model of a bank uh, is to take deposits and then issue credit against deposits um, in the form of deposits that they create either in their own institution or at, at other financial institutions. Um, it's a money creation uh, kind, of, kind of role. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've actually, I've done some interviews myself on this topic. And I, I think one of the things if you think about crypto philosophically, sound money principles, uh, sound money principles uh, are, are, you know, in Bitcoin is, is certainly an expression of this and it's grounded in Austrian economic philosophy. Uh, Austrian economic philosophy also extended to really the Chicago School of Economics in the, in the 1930s you know, and, 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 and later. But basically the idea is a fixed supply um, you know, money uh, that has a fixed supply um, is is better money uh, that, than money that can be kind of created uh, by fiat. Um, and that is a really important principle. Um, when you move from full reserve to fractional reserve, you are basically embracing the money creation that humans create money. Um, and I think one of the really important foundational components to Bitcoin and Ethereum, Ethereum as a, as Ether, as commodity money, um, has this, has that same sound money principle as well. Uh, it has a predictable supply. It has a predictable inflation rate. It's algorithmically, algorithmically determined, um, it, but it is fundamentally more or less a, a kind of fixed supply model that gives rational economic actors a basis to make uh, decisions and it forces people to make decisions in the context of those capacity constraints. Um, the, I mean, the, the basic premise of, of the Chicago School back in the 1930s, there's, there's um, the Chicago Plan is, is a famous set of work um, from many of the most prominent economists at the time in, in response to the Great Depression, which was this collapse of fractional reserve banks. You had a run on the bank, 
And guess what? They didn't have the money because they had lent it out and they didn't, you know, everyone came to get their deposits at once and it was just run in the bank. And there was a really significant argument made that we should move to full reserve banking, that banks should be, there, there should be essentially, you know, essentially deposit taking banks that also facilitate payments. And then, you know, lending activity is only based on that fixed supply money. You can't create new money. You only have that fixed supply money. And crypto, I think, inherently supports that philosophy. Uh, and I think that's I think that's important. And, you know, we can, people can argue about it. I think most modern economists would say, oh, that's hogwash. Like credit creation is really fundamental. Um, and obviously what's happening with central banking right now is is an enormous amount of money creation. Um, and, and, you know, that that is obviously has its own challenges. Um, but I, I think that the, the belief of, of the authors of the Chicago plan was that if you had full reserve banking, that you would actually smooth out the boom and bust cycles. Uh, you would actually have net increases in economic output and it, it would force economic actors, whether it be a corporation or a government to work within fiscal constraints uh, as well. And that that's ultimately advantageous to the to to economic activity and society. So, I think um, a move of you know attempting to reintroduce money creation, literally out of thin air money creation into crypto, would be very inconsistent with many of the underlying philosophical tenets of crypto itself. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to switch swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you, all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017, and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. 
You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry-leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash gobankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after signup, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out, gemini.com slash gobankless. You know, what's cool about this is so, so some people um, get a little bit upset and say like, oh, you know, uh, bank backed stable coins, that's not the vision, right? Like the vision is a non-sovereign store of value and non-sovereign money. But what I think is, is a little bit you know, like um, subtle here is that this is exactly how we bootstrap non-sovereign monies. Yes. So what people don't understand is that um, just as USDC is sticky, it's also a gateway to the yeah. rest of crypto. It's also a gateway to Bitcoin and Ethereum and DeFi, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like a nice, smooth on-ramp. And the interesting thing you, you talked about Ether being sort of a, a commodity money, right? Well, every, every time uh, there is a settlement transaction of USDC yeah. on Ethereum, right? It requires Ether. And eventually with other things in Ethereum, yep. like EIP 1559, a portion of that ether gets burned. So what are we doing? Yep. We're using the banking system to bootstrap our yep. own store of value asset. This is yeah. all very synergistic in my mind. Yeah, no, I, I completely buy that. I mean, I, I think um, I, I'm a, a very strong believer in non-sovereign store of value commodity money. Um, I'm quite long on it myself. <laughs> and uh and and have been for a long time and um and and i think there is very the you know fiat stable coins uh such as usdc are very synergistic with that over the long run you know i, I take a very long-term view on some of this i think 10 20 30 years out what might this look like and i do think over a longer period of time um we'll we'll move towards um essentially synthetic digital currencies that are, uh, uh, you know, they're synthetic, they're composited out of multiple uh, reserve currency, stable coins, and uh, allocations of commodity digital money like Ether and Bitcoin as well. And effectively, it's almost like, it's not necessarily a peg, but there's a, a, a basket, if you will. And there's a, a balancing that will continue to go on. And eventually we'll, you know, for, for everyday transactions in, in the economy, most people in the world will rely on that global synthetic unit, uh, but increasingly uh, uh, the the amount of that global synthetic unit that is based on non-sovereign money will increase over time um, and maybe over the very long run become predominantly that. So Jeremy, uh, another question here I'm curious about is, uh, do you think FinTech is gonna join the party this cycle? So it, it seems to me that, like, that they, they, they're sort of the flashy user interface layer on top of the ugly yeah. like fax machine that is the existing ACH banking right. layer, right? Um, but it, it's always struck me that like, do they really need the banks? I wonder, right? Like uh, what if they just swapped out that dusty old infrastructure yeah. for this new crypto rails infrastructure we're building? Are yeah. they gonna get this at some point? Are they gonna join the party? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I think I mean, we're, we're already seeing, you know, really interesting indicators of that. And I think that will accelerate a lot over the next couple of years. Um, I think, um, you know, it, it, it um, 
you know, it, it'll be fintechs, it'll be other types of financial institutions um, as well. Um, I, I think very much so uh, we'll, we'll move towards that. I mean, you know, th there is sort of like this kind of convergence at some level where, you know, um, you know, really broadly adopted mainstream stablecoins, um, you know, might have a supervisory relationship with banking regulators, um, but are they, it's not this, it's not, are they the same as what you think of as traditional banks or are these, um, you know, crypto and self-driving banks? <laughs> Jeremy, it, the last quarter of 2020, I think, was perhaps the most regulatory active in crypto that we've ever seen. And we saw some really awesome tailwind news, like what we talked about with out of the, the OCC. But then we also saw some very bearish, you know, very uh, uh, conflicting news that's, that's less than ideal for this industry, specifically with what we saw coming out of uh, Secretary, uh, uh, the Treasury uh, Mnuchin, which actually just got struck down today, I believe, or if not yesterday, but then also with the Stable Act. Uh, so it, there, there's definitely some tug of wars going on between the positive and the negative regulatory news. Uh, and my opinion is that this is just the beginning. And then 2021 is going to be just a more regulatory fight. Maybe you could give your opinion to, our, to us and the listeners about what you see coming in the regulatory horizon for crypto dollars and for public blockchains. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating time for that. I, I think, um, you know, the more that this lurches into the mainstream, the more that, um, you know, uh, policymakers are, are going are gonna to have opinions about it, not just opinions, they're going to legislate or they're going to come up with rules. Um, and, and that is... Uh, it's a double-edged sword because on the on the one hand, it, it really means you're you're achieving like super scale. Like this is going to be something that everyone in the world is going to use, and that's really exciting. Like wow, the idea that our transactions are going to get mediated on public chains and and and, and enable that um, is is really exciting. Um, it's a double-edged sword also because you know you, you know policy can can be a blunt instrument uh rules can be ill thought uh or or can have specific political motivations that are based on lobbying by established industries and so on and so it's complicated it's it's not it's not straightforward ultimately my philosophy has always been work with work with policymakers because you know in in the march towards global scale adoption like you know, the notion that you're just going to route around governments, I think, is 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 not not realistic. Um, what has to happen, though, and, and this is something I've said a lot, is at the end of the day, regulators, you know, are there um, because there are real risks and, and, and they're there to kind of create guardrails. And the guardrails are designed to make sure that people are not defrauded, to protect individual uh, individuals. Um, and uh, and to you know effectively limit illicit activity, limit crime, um, or or to to ensure that the financial system is not uh, you know abused uh, you know by crime. Now we know obviously that there are tons and tons and tons of of financial products and services that have not been good for consumers, um, that have, have been utilized very very broadly by by criminals. Um, and that's a that's like a tug of war that goes on, and um, and, and there's I think really good people in government that are focused on these things. And so I think you know the, the critical thing is industry has to engage on this. Now the other perspective that I have is that it's really actually 
incumbent on, on, on creators and on entrepreneurs and on technologists to solve the problems that are the risks that policymakers care about and solve them in a better way than regulations ever could solve them themselves. And so to me, something like, you know, um, you know, the, the, the record keeping requirements uh, on identity associated with public chain infrastructure, um, there's an underlying set of risk there, which is, wow, uh, if people are are self-managing their 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 crypto, they could be criminals um, or they could be abusing this in, in these other ways. Well, we clearly want to be able to have decentralized financial market infrastructure. We clearly want to be able to have individuals and businesses be able to connect to that and participate in that. Um, are there other ways to think about solving those problems? And and it's it's here that I think, for example, you know, blockchains are actually blockchains and crypto provide a lot of the answers themselves. One of the things that I'm most excited about is self-sovereign identity. I'm very, very excited about self-sovereign identity. I'm very excited about identity protocols that can be built on chain uh, that are built on, you know, crypto, on zero knowledge proofs, on verifiable claims and identity attestations and all these kinds of things that are these really important primitives that crypto makes possible and blockchains make possible that can actually lead to an individual being able to say, yeah, I'm actually who I say I am. I actually am someone who's, whose identity has been verified by an identity uh, issuer. And I can actually take that with me and control who I give that information to and, get, and have the rights to do that. And actually ultimately have like DeFi protocols that know, okay, if you want to participate in this transaction, you need to prove that you're a person uh, or, or what have you. And these are the, this is the kind of infrastructure that I think needs to get built. No regulator is ever going to say, here's what you need to do. Um, they're going to say, how are you going to deal with these risks? So I, I, I think I, I tend to sort of put it back on industry um, and say, okay, well, how do we solve these problems? That's a really good take, right? So um... I think the challenge, though, sometimes, Jeremy, is that um, the good regulators might say, okay, here's, here's what we need. How are you going to solve them? But um, sometimes not all of the, the regulators take that open-minded, like there's a solution here to solve it. So oftentimes what they'll do is they'll just come up with these heavy-handed kind of regulations like you know like famously the stable uh you know the stable act is basically like oh you can't have any stable coin denominated in u.s dollars the remember that's not regulators was- that's that was a, an academic uh who got the ears of some policy. uh we had we had rowan gray on and we talked so, very much about that um yeah, i i don't view that's not regulators but that's- even like the even the proposed rule coming out of kind of minutian that sure. was somewhat problematic and sure. it didn't offer the opportunity for industry to solve it. What's your confidence that the new administration, this new set of regulators um, under Biden uh, might, how will they work with crypto in a different way? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic on this? Well, I mean, look, um, you know, the new head of the SEC is someone who's intimately familiar with crypto. Um, He's someone who I know reasonably well. I've kind of help co-teach uh, his crypto blockchain course at MIT. Um, and 
I, I think he's a pragmatic person who understands the issues, the innovation, but he's also a regulator. He's someone who is going to be focused on like, we, this is not just some unencumbered thing that just going to go, you know, flying around. So by the way, this uh, is, this is Gary Gensler. For Gary Gensler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and Michael Barr, who is uh, apparently going to be the new head of the OCC, is someone who also has been um, involved in crypto and blockchain um, in, in his career. Um, and that's helpful. So I think people who have some awareness and education that, that are in these critical positions, that's really important. There will be a new head of the Federal Reserve that will be appointed at some point in the next you know, year or two. Um, that'll be a really interesting question as to who, who that is and, and how what their disposition is around this. I mean, look, when, when I step back and I look at, you know, the Biden administration, um, I mean, you can look at individual regulators. I don't think this is all about just individual regulators. I think this is about what is the United States government's posture going to be to this critical strategic uh, technology and infrastructure uh, area. And I think um, th there's a tremendous opportunity for the U.S. government to actually realize that this is a, a, a major, major uh, area of infrastructure that is going to be fundamental to the future of economic systems, uh, to commerce, to m many other things. And we'll, we'll figure out ways to support that industry. At the same time, I think there is going to be much more precise engagement around certain things like criminal abuse risk, um, consumer protections. And this is where I, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that there's like meaningful engagement um, and, and meaningful dialogue and ultimately um, a, a kind of collaboration with industry um, to, to ensure that, you know, if there, if there are regulations that get introduced, um, they're cognizant of the fundamental differences in how this technology works and the innovation that it spawns. Um, for example, I mean, DeFi is just a totally profound example of that. This is just doesn't fit the, the model of how you think about financial market infrastructure. This is software that is that that runs on the Internet that is, you know, just machines that run this financial market infrastructure. That's a really, really different thing. But it's here and it's got incredible power and it's a really significant innovation that opens up a lot of opportunities. So, OK, well, how do we think about that? Um, so I. I'm cautiously optimistic is ultimately what I'd say. Jeremy, I'm wondering to get your opinion on the interaction between what me and Ryan are, are following, which is kind of the rise of MMT and crypto dollars and, and using Ethereum to host and, and facilitate payments with crypto dollars. We've, mm -hmm. we've seen uh, Janet Yellen, who is uh, Joe Biden's uh, nomination to be the, the cabinet uh, secretary, uh, Secretary of the, the Treasury, yeah, and she she's made two statements uh, recently. One saying that you know they that she's interested in making very big moves when it comes to coronavirus relief, mm -hmm. which kind of is an extension of MMT using the ability to mint coin uh -huh. to help facilitate relief. And then also she's made uh, you know some of the the common criticisms of Bitcoin. We would call this FUD that Bitcoin is used to serve terrorist financing, which to my mind kind of is like, why is Janet Yellen, uh, Yellen excuse me, why is Janet Yellen talking about Bitcoin facilitating terrorist financing? We know that's not true. That's pretty baseless. To me, the incentive is, is that she's trying to protect the brand of the US dollar 
to help facilitate MMT. And we saw some of this energy coming out of Rohan Gray and the Stable Act. This was, that was very much a, a MMT inspired initiative. Do you have any thoughts about the, perhaps the collision course between yeah. public payment rails and MMT? Yeah, I mean, I think um, th there is there is a major a major you know challenge here, which is I think uh, in particular I I I would say I'm less focused on stablecoins in relation to that and more on non-sovereign you know non-sovereign store value commodity money like ether and Bitcoin. Uh, and, and many others that sort of fit that category, but just use those for, as a reference here. Um, I mean, the rise of that um, on a global basis, I mean, it is absolutely a direct threat to monetary sovereignty in the current modern form. Um, and, um, you know, th there is, uh, there, there are a couple of ways that can go right it can go the path of okay it actually becomes so big and important that uh you know it continues to be regulated as property which is how it's regulated today uh, but it actually becomes a balance sheet instrument of governments themselves and not only is it a balance sheet instrument in terms of you know holding it in reserves but actually governments make it a national priority to participate in mining and participate in network validation um, and say this is sort of systemically important infrastructure and we actually want to be active market participants in it. And that's actually necessary strategically, competitively and from a national security perspective. I think that's where it goes. Um, I, think that's, I think that's ultimately where it goes. When at the end of the day, people really think about it, um, th that, that, will be, um, that will be the path. Um, but there could be, you know, in, in different parts of the world, there, there could be very rapid, harsh, uh, unpredictable interventions um, that could be very negative for, uh, uh, for that, that form of, of digital, digital assets. Um, I mean, obviously in the history of money during the Great Depression, uh, the federal government made holding gold illegal and seized all gold from everyone. Um, you know, because it, it threatened monetary sovereignty and, and it affected how fiscal stimulus worked in the, an, a massive economic contraction. I mean, could that happen? Could something like that happen? Uh, conceptually, it, it did then. Um, so, I mean, there are, these are tail risks, right? But, um, but I, uh, I, I think um, ultimately, you know, I don't know, I don't know Janet Yellen, um, but I hope to have a chance to spend time with her. And I think, you know, th there's a lot of educating to do because I think the simplistic, oh, this is used for this, or this is used for that. Those tend to be very simplistic understandings. And so when you actually get down to the staff level, you get down to the actual, you know, people who work in these agencies in the, in the regulatory community, they have a much more sophisticated view on this. Like FinCEN, which is actually the financial crimes enforcement network that is in charge of how to deal with terrorist financing, how to deal with uh, financial crimes and the abuse of the financial system. They're incredibly savvy about this. Uh, and they're very, very great to work with. I mean, you know, they, they really are. I, I think they're, they're an agency that is part of Janet Yellen's remit now. It's part of the Treasury Department. But I think when you, when you get in and you get working with, with the actual kind of career civil servants and, and, and the established entities, they have a much, much stronger understanding.
Last thing on this, Jeremy, and then we'll get to DeFi, but just to tie off kind of re re regulatory and government. So you're talking about how maybe in the in the more distant future um, with MMT, these non-sovereign store of values may be threatening to something like the dollar. Um, but in the, the short to medium term, uh, let's face it, the dollar is the world's reserve currency, and it's quite strong. We even see it, saw its strength, as you're saying earlier, during coronavirus. There's this uh, you know, some people have called it the dollar milkshake theory, this like sucking of, of capital into dollars itself. Um, could you talk a little bit about the wins for the U.S. government in, in crypto, right? So the U.S., from an from a adversarial perspective, you've got China developing its own central bank digital currency, making pretty good progress from all we can tell. What is the U.S.'s answer to this? And could it be something like USDC on Ethereum? Yeah. So I have a, I have a pretty strong view on this. And, and that is that um, historically in the West, the it, major advancements in the financial system have come from the private sector. And it's, it's typically been consortiums of private sector actors working together to define standards and infrastructure that then is, is built out and utilized at a, at, a, at a large scale. It's technology innovators, it's financial sector innovators, and it's standards. And that's sort of been what has worked. And I have no reason to believe it'll be any different in the digital currency world in the West. I do not believe that a giant R&D project out of the Federal Reserve with a contract with IM or however you'd want to think about it is going to be remotely successful in competing with the open internet, internet entrepreneurs, public open source infrastructure and private sector actors building on top of that. Like the innovation is just night and day. It's just going to be far, far uh, more competitive, you know, on the open internet and, and private sector side of things. I think that the government will realize that and they'll say, actually, that's how we're going to compete. We're going to compete like we've always competed by having open networks by having, you know, uh, uh, sound supervision of way private sector actors that are innovating in this space. And we're going to let that drive innovation. Um, and I think that I, I just think that's likely. And I think ultimately what that translates to is I think the U.S. government and many other governments are going to get very much behind adoption of public blockchains as fundamental strategic infrastructure, not just for economic activity, for a wide range of other types of record keeping activity, transactional activity, and the like. Um, so I, I, it's extremely, I'm extremely bullish about public chains. Um, I, I think Ethereum, obviously, I think very, very highly of Ethereum. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, that's where we'll get to, um, is, is a model like that. And, um, you know, I, I think something like USDC could evolve to have a lot of other major market participants involved in it, could evolve to a place where it has, uh, you know, there, there is some kind of, of, of relationship with, with central banks as well. Um, but um, that's, that's still a ways off. Do you think these regulatory headwinds that we have seen in the recent, in the recent times actually turn into regulatory tailwinds? Once regulators realize that the key to competing with the Chinese uh, digital yuan or the, the fact that Russia is now purchasing uh, petrol in euros, uh, instead, of, instead of doubling down on a central bank digital yeah. currency out of the Fed, yeah. is actually just much more aligned with the interests of regulators totally. to just promote uh, public use cases, public yeah. blockchains usage of US dollars. Yes. 
Absolutely. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeremy, let's, let's, uh, let's conclude with um, talking about DeFi for a moment. So we, we've been talking very much about kind of um, di disruption to, to banks, the banking system. Um, how big of a deal is DeFi? I think, you know, you, you talked about Brian Brooks from the OCC. He penned, penned this uh, fantastic piece, uh, like equating it to, to self-driving cars, um, yeah. which I think probably is an analogy that works for, for a lot of, for a lot of folks, but um, is DeFi overrated? Is it underrated? How big of a deal is it in in the future of crypto and the future of of yeah. uh, finance for for the world? Yeah, I think it's totally underrated right now. Um, and I think, like I said, I think we're in the opening innings of this. And just you know, financial market infrastructure you know, is fundamentally about providing certainty, providing mechanisms of risk management uh, and, and, and dealing with, you know, uh, you know, clearing and settling things, but also dealing with counterparty and counterparty risk. And so much of, of, of what the financial market infrastructure does, you know, deals with that. For the first time ever, you can actually create systems of that, that do not have humans intermediating intermediating it that uh, is totally public and transparent to all market participants uh, that is extremely efficient that is open and global anyone can connect to it that has you know ultimately radically lower kind of unit economic costs to market participants in it like that is just so profound um, and I think you can take almost every, you know, dimension of finance. And you can imagine ways for that to happen, you know, in these on-chain protocols. Now there are going to be, you know, you know, oracles, uh, I think uh, identity, identity attestations. So entity attestations, things like this, those become really, really critical because the, the real world and the DeFi world do need to interact. Um, but as those primitives come into place, this, I, I think this can get, you know, enormously larger and can disrupt more and more dimensions of, of what, um, you know, is currently run by banks, currently run by other financial market infrastructure providers as well, you know. Uh, so there's, there's a, tr a tremendous amount that can happen there. And I think it's underrated right now. There's a, a common thought that, you know, the cryptocurrency industry and, and DeFi especially uh, exists because it lives on the margins of what is perhaps legally or legally acceptable or, or compliant, right? Hazu, I know, famous uh, uh, cryptocurrency thinker, uh, is uh, iterates that he thinks that the one of the main use cases for cryptocurrency is skirting regulation, mm -hmm. and yet, and USDC is flowing permissionlessly through DeFi, mm -hmm. which you know some protocols are to probably totally compliantly fine. Other DeFi protocols are probably more uh, legally dubious. How do you think about this tension between USDC uh, flowing through perhaps legally dubious uh, DeFi protocols? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, this is a place where, you know, we talked about kind of what regulators care about and where they're focused. And, you know, that some of this has to do with, um, you know, abuse, uh, you know, by potentially criminal actors, things like that. This is, you know, this is going to be the the vexing critical issue that faces DeFi, um, which is, um, you know, how can 
uh, DeFi um, essentially interact with real world identities? And um, how can real world identities interact with public protocols in a privacy preserving way, in a way that um, you know, is, is puts greater control into users' hands? So to me, that's how we answer these questions. It's not a USDC thing. It's, it's actually kind of these identity meta systems. How are they built for the internet? You know, when, when we were getting started with Circle, uh, and I was, you know, really excited about blockchains as an innovation. You know, the the view from my perspective is, wow, like this is the technology that solves two of the fundamental issues, two missing layers of the internet. One was money, the other was identity. And um, I think, you know, the the identity piece is is going to come later. In fact, it needs to come in response to the development of decentralized finance and uh, and, and money on the internet. And so I think that will be one of the next major phases that gets developed. And that's how we'll, that's how we'll face those issues um, at a high level. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure to get your thoughts on all of these things. One last question for you, a prediction question. How big do you think stable coins are going to get this market cycle, in particular in USDC? And when are you guys going to flip and tether? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, uh, so if you say this market cycle, um, uh, what do you what do you have in mind? There? We have in mind that we are in a bear. Uh, excuse me, a bull market. A Careful full there. <laughs> ahead, bull market, uh, and so we're thinking. You know, that could last the next year, the next two years, sort of, and all assets yeah. will grow along with the 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 bull market. So that kind yeah. of time horizon, one to three years. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, um, I, I think USDC over uh, over say two years, um, you know, could 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 easily, uh, well, I think it, it it easily exceeds like fifty billion. Um, I think um, you know there there are scenarios where, in particular, if more mainstream financial applications integrate to this and start to utilize it in different ways, it could exceed you know hundred billion. Um, but um, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to know. I, I would have given you a different number six months ago. <laughs> so, Jeremy, uh, do you think uh, Tether's here to stay? I, I do actually. Um, I mean, I, I think um, a you know, there's the classic kind of uh, uh, kind of offshore dollar market, kind of euro dollar market type type role. Uh, there's significant demand in Asia for shadow banking, for dollar shadow banking. Those markets exist. They're large. They will continue to exist. They'll grow. Uh, and so I expect Tether to play a critical role in that. Um, and, um, and so I would, I would expect it to absolutely to, 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 to have staying power and continue to grow. Absolutely. Well, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure to have you on Bankless. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed it. Bankless Nation, some action items for you today. One is something that you can do, which is if you haven't already, try out USDC. It is fantastic. I think you will find yourself wanting to move more and more of your funds out of the traditional banking system and into the crypto banking system. USDC is a great gateway for that. 
Uh, secondly, David and I are now doing debrief episodes. This is for Bankless premium subscribers, where it's just David and I's raw, uncut thoughts on the episode we just recorded. It's about 20 to 30 minutes. Premium subscribers get that after every episode. We'll include a link if you're interested in that for you to subscribe and get a premium Bankless membership. Finally, of course, risks and disclaimers. None of this was financial advice. Crypto is risky. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is as well. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we're headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on the Bankless journey.